Part Two, Chapter Seven of the Merry-Go-Round. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by T. R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. The Merry-Go-Round by W. Somerset Maugham. Part Two, Chapter Seven. During his fortnight at home, Frank observed his father and mother with great attention and realized, really for the first time, how enormous were the sacrifices they made for his sake. Every day, fine or rainy, old Dr. Harrell drove out to visit his scattered patients and in the afternoon trudged round on foot. From five till seven he saw patients in the surgery and often enough was called up in the middle of the night to go to a farmhouse five miles away in the very heart of the country. To all these people he dispensed the fruits of his long experience, medical knowledge, perhaps a little rough and ready, but serviceable enough, and of a surety his old-fashioned drugs, his somewhat drastic surgery, were more popular with yokel and farmer than would have been any new-fangled methods of treatment. Besides, he gave to all and sundry good cheery advice and a piece of his mind when they did what they shouldn't, so that it was no wonder not a practitioner for twenty miles around was so beloved and trusted. But it was a monotonous life, without rest, without a single break from year's end to year's end, ill-paid if paid at all, and for thirty years the good man and his wife had looked upon every sovereign earned as held in trust for their only son. They had demanded economy neither at Oxford nor afterward in London, but rather pressed money upon him. They had received with proud enthusiasm his desire to take up consulting practice, though knowing he must for a long time still be a charge upon them and insisted that he should rent in harley street the very best rooms obtainable the constant drudgery had been happiness unalloyed because it gave every chance to the beloved boy whose brilliant talents seemed a thing so surprising that they could only thank god humbly for an unmerited mercy don't you get tired of the practice sometimes father asked frank it's a matter of habit and it's all i'm fit for a country practice and then i have my reward because some day you may be at the head of the profession and when afterwards they write your life a chapter will be devoted to the old g p at fern who first gave you a love for medicine but we shan't work very much longer said mrs Harrell for soon we should be able to afford to retire and live close to you. Sometimes we do want to see you often, Frank. It's very hard to be separated from you for so long at a time. There was a trembling in that strong, even voice, so that Frank felt powerless. How could he, for reasons they would never understand, destroy that edifice of hope on which they had spent so many years of striving? he could never cause them such bitter bitter pain so long as they lived he must bear the yoke which they had put upon him 
and go on with the steady, not inglorious routine of his existence in London. You've been very good to me, he said, and I'll try so to live as to prove to you that I'm grateful for all you've done. I'll be very ambitious so that you may not think you've wasted your time. But Frank's humor was inclined to the satiric when he arrived at Jayston, the Castellan's place in Dorsetshire. Miss Lay had finally decided that her health prevented her from indulging in any dissipation, but Mrs. Barlow Bassett, with Reggie, came by the same train as himself and Paul's mother, who with her companion made up the small party a few hours later. A wizened little woman with white hair and a preposterous cap, the elder Mrs. Castellan babbled incessantly of nothing in particular, but for the most part of her own family, the Bainbridges of Somersetshire, whereof now she was the only living representative. Immensely proud of her stock, she took small pains to hide her contempt for all whose names figured less importantly than her own in the landed gentry. Ignorant, narrow, ill-educated, and ill-bred, she pursued her course through this veil of sorrow with the most comfortable assurance of her superiority to the world in general, and not only in her husband's time, but even now that Paul reigned in his stead by virtue of the purse-strings whereof she kept tight hold, tyrannized systematically over Jayston and all the villages surrounding. Her abominable temper, unchecked since in early youth she awoke to the fact that she was an heiress of old family, was freely vented on Miss Johnston, her companion, a demure maiden of forty, who ate with admirable complacency the bread of servitude, but also to some extent on her daughter-in-law, whom the old lady detested heartily, never hesitating to remind her that it was her good money which she so lightly squandered. Paul alone, whom she spoke of always as the squire, had influence with her, for it was Mrs. Castellan's belief, innate as the capacity of ducks to swim, that the holder of this title was God's representative on earth, a person of superhuman attributes, whose word was law and whose commands must be obeyed. And Frank, who had seen Mr. Castellan somewhat flouted in London as a notorious bore, was amazed to find that here he was ultimate arbiter of all questions. His judgment was unquestioned in matters of opinion as in matters of fact. His ideas upon art or science were as necessarily final as his political theories were the only ones an honest man could hold. When he had spoken, all was said, and it would have been as rational to contradict him as to argue with an earthquake. But even Paul was relieved when his mother's periodic visits came to an end, for her forcible and unique repartee made intercourse somewhat difficult. Thank God I'm not a Castellan, she said habitually. I'm a Bainbridge, and I think you'll have some difficulty in finding a better family in this part of England. You Castellans hadn't a penny to bless yourselves till I married into you. At dinner on his first evening, 
frank attempted to join intelligently in the conversation but soon found that nothing he could say in the least interested the company he had imagined innocently that it was ill-mannered to speak of one's ancestors but now learned that there were households wherein it was the staple of conversation this rested chiefly between the elder mrs castellan the squire and his brother bainbridge agent for the property an obese man with a straggling beard rather untidy and dressed in shabby old clothes who talked very slowly with a broad dorsetshire accent and to frank seemed not a whit better than the farmers with whom he mostly consorted they spoke besides of local affairs of the neighboring gentry and of the rector's vulgar independence afterwards grace castellan went up to frank aren't they awful she asked i have to put up with this day after day for weeks at a time paul's mother rubs her money and her family into me bainbridge that lout who should dine with the housekeeper instead of with us discusses the weather and the crops and paul plays at being god almighty but mrs barlow bassett was somewhat impressed by the pomposity of her environment and took an early opportunity again to peruse the account given by the worthy burke of the family whose guest she was she found the page much thumbed and boldly marked with blue pencil every article in the house had its history which old mrs castellan the elder narrated with gusto for though from her exalted standpoint despising the family into which she had married she had no doubt they were a great deal better than any one else here were books collected by sir john castellan grandfather of the present squire there the eastern curiosities of the admiral his great-uncle in fine array were portraits of frail ladies in the time of charles the second and of fox-hunting red-faced gentlemen in the reign of king george mrs bassett had never so felt her own insignificance after two days frank retired to his room to compose a wrathful letter to miss ley oh wise woman i know now why the thought of a visit to jayston drove you to such a state of desperation i am so bored that i feel perfectly hysterical and except that i dare not risk to make myself ridiculous even in the privacy of my bedchamber would fling myself on the floor and howl it would have been charitable to warn me but i take it that you had a base desire i should eat the bread of hospitable persons and then betray to you all their secrets to gain your ends you have stifled the voice of conscience and deafened your ears to the promptings of good feeling it would serve you right if i discoursed for six pages on things in general but i so overflow with indignation that even though i feel a mean swine because i abuse my host i must let myself go a little imagine a georgian house spacious and well-proportioned and dignified filled with the most delicate furniture of chippendale and sheraton portraits on the walls by sir peter Lely and romney and splendid tapestries a park with wide meadows and magnificent trees before which you feel it possible to kneel down and worship all around the country is undulating lovely and fertile and it belongs lock stock and barrel 
to people who have not a noble idea no thought above the commonplace no emotion that is not petty and sordid pray observe also that they hardly despise me because i am what they call a materialist it makes my blood boil to think that this wonderful place is enjoyed by a pompous ass a silly woman an ill-tempered harridan and a loutish boar all of whom if things went by desserts would inhabit the back room of a grocer's shop in peckham rye bainbridge who will eventually come into the estate unless mrs castellon can bring herself so to endanger her figure as to produce an heir is a curious phenomenon he went to eton and spent a year at oxford from which he was sent down because he could pass no examination but in manners and conversation is no better than a labourer at thirteen shillings a week he has lived all his life here and goes to london once in two years to see the agricultural show but let me not think of him the day is passed by mrs barlow bassett listening with open mouth to mrs castellon's family anecdotes by reggie and eating and drinking and sucking up to the squire by myself in desperation i fancied that i might get entertainment from miss johnston the companion and was at some pains to make myself amiable but she has the soul of a sycophant when i asked whether she was never bored she looked at me severely and answered oh no dr harrell i'm never bored by gentlefolks whenever there is a pause in the conversation or mrs castellon is out of temper she points to some picture or ornament of which she has already heard the history a thousand times and asks how it came into the family fancy your not knowing that cries the old lady and breaks into an endless rigmarole about some beery squire happily deceased or about a simpering dame whose portrait shows that her liver from tight lacing must have been quite out of shape the things a single woman is driven to for thirty pounds a year and board and lodging i would far sooner be a cook oh how i long for the smoking-room in old queen street and your conversation i am coming to the conclusion that i only like two kinds of society yours on the one hand and that of the third-class actor on the other where the men are all blackguards the women frankly immoral and no fuss is made when you drop an h i feel thoroughly comfortable i don't think i have any overwhelming desire to emit aspirates but it is a relief to be in company where no notice would be taken if i did yours ever frank harrell miss ley would have used her sharp eyes at jayston to more purpose than frank and seen enacted a little comedy which on one side verged somewhat to the tragic tired and unhappy grace castellon with all her soul looked forward to reggie's visit as a respite from the anxiety of her life for of late more than ever tormented by her conscience only the actual presence of her lover was able to make her forget how abominably she treated paul she had learnt to see the tenderness behind her husband's pompous manner and his complete loving confidence gave a very despicable air to her behaviour she felt guilty before him and vile but with reggie by her side 
Grace knew she would forget everything save her insatiable passion. She resolved only to see his good points and forget how ill he had used her. It seemed that she could only keep the bare shreds of her self-respect by holding on to his love, and if she lost that, nothing would remain but the dark night of despair and shame. And her heart rejoiced because at Jaston no conflicting desires would take Reggie from her side. They could walk together delightfully, and in the quiet country enjoy somewhat of that great bliss which glorified the memories of their early friendship. But to her dismay, Mrs. Castellon found that Reggie systematically avoided to be alone with her. The morning after his arrival, she asked him to come for a stroll in the park, and he accepted with alacrity. But after going upstairs to put on her hat, she found that Paul and Mrs. Bassett waited for her in the hall. "'Reggie says you've offered to show us the park,' said Mrs. Bassett. It'll be so nice for us all to go together. Charming, answered Mrs. Castellon. She shot an angry glance at Reggie, which he sought not to elude, but took calmly, with a faint smile of amusement, and when they walked, he dawdled so as to be well within earshot of the others. After luncheon, again, he remained with Frank, and it was not till the evening that Mrs. Castellon had opportunity even to say half a dozen words. "'Why did you ask your mother to come out with us this morning?' she asked hurriedly in a low voice. "'You knew I wanted to talk to you alone. "'My dear girl, we must be careful. "'Your mother-in-law is watching us like a cat, "'and I'm sure she suspects something. "'I don't want to get you into a mess.' "'I must see you alone. "'I must talk to you,' cried Mrs. Castellon desperately." don't be a fool well i shall wait for you here after the others have gone to bed you'll jolly well have to wait because i'm not going to take any risks she gave him a look of hatred but could not answer for at that moment miss johnston joined them and reggie with alertness unusual to him engaged her in the conversation grace for the moment discountenanced and careless if she betrayed her distress stared at him fixedly wondering what was in that mind which reveled in crooked ways she felt horribly powerless in his hands and knew though it sickened her to know it that now he would play with her cruelly cat-like till he was sufficiently amused and not till then deal the final blow for two days more he pursued the same tactics more carefully still so that he never saw mrs castellon even for a moment except when others were present and he appeared to take a malicious pleasure in hurting her he made extravagant compliments which excited paul's ponderous hilarity and using her like an intimate friend with whom he was on confidential terms chafed and bantered and laughed at her old mrs castellon who liked to be amused took a great fancy to him which was no way diminished when she discovered with a clear vision of dislike that her daughter-in-law winced at these good-natured jokes grace bore them with a smiling face with little shrieks of laughter but it seemed there was a great raw wound in her heart which reggie callously joyful because he inflicted pain probed with a red-hot knife 
when she was alone and could surrender to her wretchedness she wept bitterly wondering half mad with agony why her passionate love should be repaid by this inexplicable hatred she had done everything possible to make reggie love her and besides giving him her whole soul had been very very good to him he's found me a real brick all through she sobbed i'd have done anything to help him of late even she had sought to influence him for his own weal persuading him to drink less and to be less extravagant in her adoration she was capable of any sacrifice for his sake and the result was only that he loathed her she could not understand at length she could bear the torment no longer and since reggie gave no opportunity determined at all costs to make one but it was the last day of the visit and he doubled his precautions with an inkling that grace would force an interview he took care not to be alone for one moment and sighed with relief when after a smiling good night he retired with the other men to the smoking-room but mrs castellan was decided not to let him go without an explanation of his behavior and although the danger of her contemplated step was enormous her frame of mind was so desperate that she did not hesitate when reggie chuckling slyly because he had circumvented her went to his bedroom he found grace quietly seated waiting for him good lord what are you doing here he cried for once startled from his self-possession frank might very well have come in with me she did not answer his question but stood up and faced him more haggard and pale for the magnificence of her gown and the brilliancy of her diamonds she sought to compose herself and to talk deliberately why have you been avoiding me all these days she asked i want an explanation what are you up to oh for god's sake don't bring that up again i'm sick to death of it you didn't suppose i was coming down here to stay with your husband and then play the fool with you after all i flatter myself i'm a gentleman mrs castellan gave a low angry laugh it's rather late in the day to develop honourable sentiments isn't it haven't you got some better story to tell me than that what do you take me for why should you always think i'm lying to you because experience has shown me that you generally are he shrugged his shoulders and lit a cigarette then looked at grace with deliberation as though meditating what he should now do haven't you got anything to say to me at all she asked her voice suddenly breaking nothing except that you'd better go back to your own room it's devilish unsafe for you to be here and i can tell you i don't want to get into a mess but what does it all mean she cried desperately don't you care for me any more well if you insist it means that i think the whole thing had better stop reggie i want to turn over a new leaf i'm going to give up racketing about and settle down i'm sick of the whole thing he did not look at her now but kept his eyes away nervously a sob caught grace's throat for what she feared was true i suppose you're gone on somebody else that's no business of yours is it oh you cad i wonder how i could ever have been such a fool as to care for you he gave a short dry laugh but did not answer 
She went up to him quickly and took hold of his arms. You're hiding something from me, Reggie. For God's sake, tell me the whole truth now. He turned his eyes to her slowly, that sulky look of anger on his face, which she knew so well. Well, if you want to know, I'm going to be married. What? For a moment she could not believe him. Your mother never said a word about it, he laughed. You don't suppose she knows, do you? And what if I tell her, whispered Grace hurriedly, distracted, only knowing that this horror must be prevented. You can't marry. You haven't the right to now. It's too infamous. I won't let you. I'll do anything to stop it. Oh, Reggie, Reggie, don't leave me. I can't bear it. Don't be a fool. It had got to come to an end some day or other. I want to marry and settle down. Mrs. Castellan looked at him, and despair and anger and vehement hatred chased one another across her mobile face. We'll see about that, she whispered vindictively. Reggie went up to her and caught her violently by the shoulders, so that she could hardly bear the pain. Look here, none of your little games. If I find out that you've been putting a spoke in my wheel, I'll give you away. You'd better hold your tongue, my dear, and if you don't, every letter you've written to me will be sent to your mother-in-law. Grace turned deathly pale. You promised me you'd burn them. I dare say, but you're not the only woman I've had to do with. I always like to have a weapon or two in my hands, and I thought it might be useful if I kept your letters. They'd make pretty reading, wouldn't they? He saw the effect of his words on Grace and let go. She tottered to a chair, shaken with terror. Reggie rubbed it in. I'm not a bad-tempered chap, but when people put my back up, I know how to get even with them. For a moment she gazed straight in front of her. Then she looked up with a curious expression in her eyes. She spoke in a hoarse voice, jerkily. I don't think you'd come out of it very well if there were a public scandal. Don't you have any fear about me, my girl, he answered. What do you suppose I care if I'm made a co? The mater would be a bit sick, but it don't really matter a button to a man. Not if it gets known that he's taken a good deal of money off the woman unlucky enough to fall in his clutches. You forget that I paid you, paid you, my friend, paid you. In the last six months, you've had two hundred pounds out of me. Do you think anyone would ever speak to you again if they knew? She saw the deep blush of shame which colored his dark cheeks, and with a ring of bitter triumph in her voice, continued, The first time I sent you money, I never thought for a moment you'd accept, and because you did, I knew what a low cur you were. I've got letters, too, in which you ask for money, and letters in which you thank me because I sent it. I kept them, not because I wanted a weapon against you, but because I loved you and treasured everything you touched. She stood up, and with cold, sneering lips flung out the words. She hoped they would rankle. She wanted to wound his self-esteem, to sear him so that he should writhe before her. Make a scandal by all means, and let all the world see that you're nothing but a blackguard and a cad. Oh, I should like to see you expelled from your club. I should like to see people cut you in the street. Don't you know that there are laws to imprison men who get money in no filthier way than you? 
reggie strode up to her but she was no longer frightened she laughed at him he thrust his face close to hers look here get out of this or i'll give you such a thrashing as you'll never forget thank god i'm done with you now get out get out without a word swiftly she passed him and went to the door not caring who might be about she crossed the long passage that led from reggie's room to hers her brain beating as though devils within it hammered madly she could not realize what had occurred but felt that the world was strangely coming to its end it seemed to her the finish of life and of everything her wan cheeks were flushed still with anger and hatred she had just reached her door when paul walked towards her up the great staircase for one moment she was panic-stricken but the danger extraordinarily cleared her mind grace i've been looking for you he said i wondered where you were i've been talking to mrs bassett she answered quickly where on earth did you suppose i was i couldn't think i've just been downstairs to see if you were there i wish you wouldn't follow me about and spy on my movements she cried irritably i'm very sorry my darling i didn't mean to do that he stood at the door of her room for heaven's sakes come in or go out she said but don't stand there with the door wide open i'll just come for two minutes he answered mildly what do you want she took off her jewels which burnt her neck like a circle of fire i've something i wish to talk to you about i'm much distressed by a thing that has happened on the estate oh my dear paul she cried impatiently for goodness sake don't worry me to-night you know i don't care twopence about the estate why don't you consult bainbridge who's paid to look after it my love i wanted your advice oh if you knew how my head was aching i feel as if i could scream in sheer agony he stepped forward full of affectionate concern my poor child why didn't you tell me before i'm so sorry and i've been bothering you is it very bad she looked up at him and her mouth twitched he was so devoted so kind and whatever she did he could overlook and forgive what a pig i am she cried how can you like me when i'm so absolutely horrid to you my darling he smiled i don't blame you for having a headache a sudden impulse seized her she flung her arms round his neck and burst into a flood of tears oh paul paul you are good to me i wish i were a better wife i've not done my duty to you he folded his arms about her and kissed tenderly her painted wan and wrinkled face my darling i wouldn't want a better wife oh paul why can't we be alone we seem so separated let's go away together where we can be by ourselves can't we go abroad i'm sick of seeing people i'm sick of society we'll do whatever you like my dearest a great happiness filled him and he wondered how he had deserved it he wished to stay by his wife helping her to undress but she begged him to go my poor child you look so tired he said kissing her forehead gently i shall be better in the morning and then we'll start a new life i'll try and be better to you i'll try and deserve your love good-night darling he closed the door very softly leaving her to her thoughts End of chapter seven